Hey guys, welcome back to the Special Containment Podcast. Today we got our new guest, Evan Royalty on. Hello, how's everybody doing? He, uh, if you don't know him, he's an SP YouTuber, makes some pretty rad videos. You should check him out. Do you want to give yourself a little elevator pitch about your channel? Um, yeah, my name is Evan Royalty and every video I make is a cry for help. Yeah, let's, let's leave it there. Yeah. There's nothing else to add to that. I do want to say, I want to give a big shout out to your Discord server, because I personally think it is one of the best Discord servers I've been on. I think part of that reason is because you just ruin with like rule with like an iron fist. Uh, yeah, like, I'm I'm extremely anti cringe. Um, I I'm not very tyrannical about most things, but when it comes to cringe, um, I'm I'm basically Hitler. I uh, oh, we're not gonna get along. It's it's I hate it. <laughs> Even like ironic cringe bothers the fuck out of me. <laughs> Ironic Grinch is Jake. This is core. This is essence. There's some of it that I can handle. Like, like shitty meme formats I can get behind. But man, like, just people being, like, completely lacking in any self-awareness, it, it gives me secondhand embarrassment. I get embarrassed watching them embarrass themselves. So I immediately put a lid on it. Because it's like, I, I, can't, I can't suffer to look at it. Oh, oh yeah. By, by the way, I'm here, also. There, Jake's here. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Oh. Speak up. Um, uh, all right. Uh, what? Hi, my name, my name is Hormone Foundry Jake. That's my first name. I changed it legally. Um, all right. So we, we were talking about this earlier, but you usually start off every podcast with the, the good old classic question. How'd you find SCP? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I sort of just kind of always knew about it, I guess. Like, I don't, I don't really know. I never had like a moment where I'm like, oh my God, I discovered this amazing thing on the internet. It's always sort of like something I'd heard about, and I was very aware of it when there was that big YouTuber like wave with it in like 2012 or 2011, where like tons of YouTubers were jumping on the Containment Breach game, and um, it, like I didn't really start actually like caring about it until like I'd say 2018, where I was like, okay, maybe I could actually write something for this, and I sort of got into it. Was like, oh, I, I like a certain elements of this and like the the ideological positions that certain factions have which was the sort of permeates throughout a lot of my content because that to me is the most interesting part of it and it combines a lot of things that i like and i was like okay maybe i could actually write something for this and it would sort of like be a nice fusion of interests which that appeals to me because if you start doing content at all you need to you need to want to do it all the time um and if you make something that's, say, a really hyper-focused uh, genre piece, like, I'm going to make a Western or something, it's like, well, what if you're not in the mood to make a Western that day? It's going to be miserable for you to work on it. But for SCP, that appealed to me because it's like, okay, well, if I'm in the mood to work on something that's, say, military-focused, I can do that. If I want to work on something that's strictly horror-focused, which I will say I'm basically always in a mood to work on something horror-focused, but if I'm, you know, either way, I can swing back and forth, you know, and I can still want to work on a project, which was something I learned a long, long time ago. But, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I sort of did it on a whim. Like, I was like, eh, maybe I'll make an SCP video to do okay. And then it got like 2 million views. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, like, I've noticed with pretty much all your SCP videos, at least, there's definitely, like, very heavy, like, military kind of focus. Are you just, like, super into all that kind of... Not as much as some people, but, like, um, what sort of happened was in 2018 I was working on a screenplay for a short film which like looking back on it it was an absurdly dumb idea 
because um, we were like, oh, what if we did this cool military-focused short movie? And then the more we did it, I was like, hmm, who the fuck is going to want to watch this? Because, like, it doesn't appeal to a specific fan base or anything. It It's not, like, based on anything. So if we want to crowdfund it, like, it's going to be so hard to convince anybody to give us money to make it. But what it did force me to do was do research into military stuff, which I knew nothing about prior to starting it. And I read, like stacks of books like a shitload and i mean that's a whole subject in itself like deciphering military memoirs because you have mm -hmm. to determine the truth from the lies and what you notice a lot whenever you read any sort of military focused book is if you go look it up somebody is coming after the author and accusing them of something um so it's sort of difficult to determine like if the author is actually telling you the truth or if they just want to get fame and recognition out of their service rather than yeah. making it exclusively service. Um, but I learned enough to sort of get like confident enough to start a story and not like panic. Cause I remember at the beginning of that screenplay, I was like completely crippled. I was like, I don't know how to do any of this because I had known so little about this. I don't know the structure of a, like a fire team or a squad. I didn't know mission codes and like protocol i didn't know anything um, but like doing my research did definitely get me comfortable enough to do it but like because i didn't make it and i wasn't interested in making it i had done all this research and kind of done nothing with it at that point so and and one of the things that got me to do first contact was like I, I knew that I was really into military stuff and I knew it was into horror, so it was a natural fit. But there was also, like, the seeds of that were planted a long, long time ago with a little video game called Fear, oh, First yeah. Encounter Assault mm. Recon. Yeah. I remember, like, being really into that when I was very, very young, like, 13 or 14 or something. And, like, that was a big introduction to me to, like, video game horror. It, <laughs> Looking back on it now as an adult, it's not even slightly scary, but... I liked that fusion, and I always wanted to see people attempt more of that. Even though it wasn't even meant to be realistic or anything, I liked the idea of using military stuff with, like, that kind of horror. Um, and then after that, it's just combining all my influences on top of that that already exist, I guess. It's interesting. Usually, like, most people I know that are pretty into military stuff, it's, like, years and years of obsession. I've never even fired a gun, <laughs> like, oh, wow. in my life. Damn. I just sort of got into it just out of, like, it's happenstance. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like I've always had a more casual interest, but, I mean, Jake, Jake, you're the reason why I actually know a lot more military stuff, to be honest. Well, I mean, like, I the, like the military stuff for me was, like, what it added to, the, like, what I was doing was, if I could get that part at least semi-realistic, what it does is it contrasts the ridiculous nature of what's going on, because if I just said, fuck it, look at this ridiculous thing, therefore why should I care about the realism of the soldiers, then it wouldn't really create a unique aesthetic of any kind. I would simply be doing what every kind of mediocre science fiction film has been doing for a long time now. But if you actually make something in it genuinely believable, or at least close to believable, then when ridiculous shit starts happening, it, it, it has so much more of an impact. And at least that was the thesis that I developed when I was doing the screenplay like in 2018 that never got made and I'd like to think my theory is somewhat correct in, in in practice at least it's important to have something grounding yeah I mean the huge respect for the fact that like you really put in your homework and you don't kind of just kind of like eh 
the viewer won't know, so who cares? There's some of that where I've where I've like been aware of like taking. I mean, I just want to say straight up, I'm, I've never gotten a single film perfect, and it's just not possible. I'm, I, in the end, I'm a civilian. I never served, and I've gotten a lot of different perspectives from a lot of different people who did serve. And one of the things that immediately was apparent was that I was never going to get the same answer to the same problem. There's a common phrase when it comes to this, and it's called, there's a thousand ways to skin a cat. And it's basically something you, it's a reply you get if you go, well, I was told that you could do it this way. Somebody go, well, it's a thousand ways to skin a cat. And sort of like that never reassured me because I went, yeah, but I bet there's a thousand bad ways to skin a cat um, in addition to the other however many ways. I'm sure you could skin it with a washing machine if you, you know, put it high <laughs> enough, but it wouldn't really yeah, be good like, for the Here's the thing, it's like, it, there's there's points where I sort of, like, I went into it going, I'm just gonna, like, do whatever I can, I'm gonna cover every single basis, and I'm gonna do all this, and, and I'm now at a point where it's like, I'm gonna do whatever I can, but if I come to a point where it's just like, as a civilian, I can't possibly know the answer, I'm just gonna say fuck it, and say that I did my best, because there's times where I, I genuinely cannot get, like, a good answer for something. A good example would be like, I remember I saw this disagreement between two people about like the nature of putting a site on an LMG. I don't remember where I saw it, but one of them said, you would never do this. This is retarded. You would never even bother putting a site on an LMG because it would, it just wouldn't be secure. It wouldn't, wouldn't work. And in the end, you're walking in your rounds. And the other person was like, no, I served and I did this. And both of these people served. So it's like, who do I listen to? <laughs> in the end, I'm, I'm stuck in the middle with like, no, idea who, who, whose word to take. I guess if there's a point where I actively did something that wasn't realistic, it would be from Dollhouse, where um, we had a version of Dollhouse where the truck engine remains on when they get out of it, but I didn't put that in until very late into the like editing process. So we had it not on that whole time. And I remember watching it going, I like the tone of this. I prefer that it be quiet. And, but our military advisor, our technical advisor, rather, said that they would always leave the engine on. And so mm. I was like, okay. And I put an engine in. And I I thought it drastically took away from the, the, the feeling that I liked. So I was like, now I'm going to take it out because I think it actually really hurts it. Mm. That was, I think, the only time that I actively went, no, I'm going to I'm going to refuse to do something realistic in favor of the drama. But I mean, everything else is just a m mistake on my part. And I don't know. I'm, I'm over the fear of fucking up. Like, I'm just like, yeah, whatever. I'll try not to do it next time and move on. Yeah, as long as you learn and apply it in the future. Yeah. Like, you're a young filmmaker. It's not like you had, like, made 20 movies and you're like, uh, whatever. Yeah. Um, it's it's weird because it feels like I'm always kind of starting over with any new project, but I mean, it's a whole unrelated subject. Um, I mean, I feel that. It feels like I've been working for a while, but in some ways I'm still so inexperienced. Like in the end, I've never yeah. written a, I've never written a feature, um, but like I've been doing this for like nearly eight years. Yeah, that's crazy. How long have you been doing this? <laughs> and most of it was not spent learning anything. Most of it was just like if you go back and watch my terrible old videos, which you should not do. Um, <laughs> it's watching a kid play with his Legos. You're not watching me do even slightly anything interesting. And I had no idea what I was doing wrong the whole time and just didn't bother learning anything until like 2016 when I was like, OK, I'm actually going to like figure out shot composition. What made you stick with machinimas? Because I feel like they were like really hot for a couple of years. I'm poor. Yeah, just just the fact that you. Can I mean, if, it. Do, do you notice anything specific about my current machinima works, like at all? Well, a lot of them are in GTA. I know that. Not just that. But. They're specifically designed for you not to know that they're machinimas. 
Yeah, you definitely try. And they don't have GTA 5 Machinima on the title. So, like, first contact, mm. there are still comments about that today going, what was this made on? Oh, wow, this <laughs> looks like... I can I could immediately tell it was Gmod. Wow, bad. Uh, or, like, wow, this is really cool SFM work. And it's like, no, it's just me putting post-processing over GTA. Um, yeah. And so, like, if I put GTA 5 Machinima on the title, nobody would have touched that thing. Nobody. Let's be real. Like, it's... It, and, yeah. I mean, I could get into, like, the stuff that I'm doing now, which is trying to stop doing machinima and move on to other mediums that people actually like. Like, it's, it's all, it's, I'm, I'm basically in panic mode because the stuff that I got out of GTA is, like, I'm running on fumes. And I got, like, maybe one more idea and then I need to really move on. I need to actually stop doing that and do something else because I've basically pushed it to its limit. Like, there, there's only so many things, and, and nobody's developing mods for it that actually give me an advantage. So are you thinking more like doing more stuff like Dollhouse is more like live action route? Or animation? I want to do animation and I want to do live action. Um, the other thing is, like, to me, YouTube is also kind of a means to an end. In the end, I started it going, I want to be a filmmaker, and I'm still mm -hmm. at that position where it's like, in the end, I want to be a legit filmmaker. So YouTube, to me, has always been a, like a like just a tool to get to that but it's it's not a good tool for that it's really not like in the sense that like it's not enough just to get the contacts like you need a, a mix of both it give it'll give you some things for sure but like there was a podcast that freddie w was on i think it was like the corridor digital podcast and freddie w was on it for one point and he talked about it and he said basically like executives don't care how many views a youtube video got yes there are exceptions to this if you look at something like lights out but like most of the time it's not going to be good enough to get you uh, anything. You, you need to have some impact in the film world in some way. And I mean like the traditional route. You go to a festival, you, you get an award or you get attention or something like that. You know, you start through these sort of gateways that everybody else goes through. YouTube generally isn't going to work. But what YouTube can do for you is YouTube can get you to... Like, it can get you started, and that's very important. Um, it, like, the hardest part of any art form is getting started, and getting started meaningfully. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I took a pitching class with an HBO executive, and she was telling me, yeah, she doesn't care if you get, like, a bunch of views on one video. What she really cares about is, A, do you have a production company? So, like, A, have you produced... It doesn't necessarily have to be a film, but have you been able to, like, run a production company and, like, be competent on the business side? And B, if there's a YouTube aspect, if you have a strong fan base, to her that's like, oh cool, I have almost guaranteed viewership of some kind. Like she was yeah. saying, like if you had a million subscribers and like, I don't know, maybe like a quarter mil or like a really passionate fan group, she would be like, yeah, I'd sign you on for a smaller film. There's plenty of examples of YouTubers who've gone to make, make movies to mixed results, but like it's, it's to me it doesn't matter. Cause I mean, what's fucked is that most of these people weren't even filmmakers with the exception of, I think Joe Penna. Yeah, uh, he even Joe Pennant had to still go through the traditional gateways. If you want to know how bad it is to actually use YouTube as a tool, um, Joe Pennant's producers didn't know he was a YouTuber until he was already filming Arctic. Like he was on the set, and they were like, "What's this stuff on Twitter? What is this? Are you like a Twitter celebrity?" I feel like his issue is like his channel isn't doesn't really translate to like traditional filmmaking at all. It's all like well, he had done. He had done like proper film work for I think music videos and stuff for a while before he got into mm -hmm. like filmmaking, which was his I think his gateway into it. Um, 
And then there's, I mean, then you can look at success stories like uh, David F. Sandberg, who yeah, just, I mean, if there is any example of like getting your foot in the door, watch that guy's videos because he just makes horror shorts with his wife. Yeah, no, he's fantastic. They've had incredible success on YouTube. Um, if you, if you, if you want to know a place to start, I mean, they didn't just start there. That's been their whole shtick. But like, if you want a place to start, like you can do that. Um, and he has a great series just about like advice as a Hollywood director and like what it's like to be in there. Oh yeah. His channel is amazing in general. Go watch all of his videos. That's one example. But he, I think he got insanely lucky um, with Lights Out. I kind of forget the story behind that. It's very simple. Uh, the, the way I take that kind of knowledge is I, and I'm kind of rambling and I'm kind of going without direction, but the way I can sort of take what I've seen from other people who've gone from YouTube to filmmaker is like, you need to be developing varying strategies. So like I could mm -hmm. say tomorrow that I just want to make a short film for a festival, but it could fail. Um, it, everything could go wrong. And in the end, I'm not going to de like deprive myself of the option of still making stuff for YouTube and potentially it maybe going insane, taking off. And I mean, I work every day and just make as many videos as I physically can. I mean, and occasionally some of them do really well. So I know one thing that really impressed some producers I talked to were like, if you could successfully kickstart a film, we're probably going to take you more seriously than just I have a YouTube channel. Yeah. Because that's something that shows like, oh, your fan base is willing to dish out decent money to see your work. That's sort of almost going to be a lie, though, if I if I successfully kickstart anything, because most of the stuff that I have ideas for Kickstarter projects are based on stuff that already has a fan base. <laughs> so if I said, yeah, but, well, look, I was able to kickstart it because I uh, the look, they, they love my though. stuff. It shows you know how to like tap into pre-existing fan bases, which you know, I mean, look I mean, at yeah, like, that's what like every basic marketing. Hollywood studio is trying to do. Yeah, you know, they're not trying um, to build everything from scratch. Yeah, I mean, if I can make a legit Kickstarter project, that definitely would look good. And not only that, like I think the the good the good thing that could come out of that is not only how to get money, but how to spend it wisely. Yeah, I don't know if that's appealing to producers, but if I was a producer, oh, hugely, that would hugely. be that would stick out to me. Yeah, like that's um, what that. HBO executive was telling me it was like yeah like if you were able to make a decent short film with like $25,000 Kickstarter yeah it shows to me that you know how to allocate those resources you know how to like do budgeting yeah um, now I, I don't personally know how to do that the most I know is like I've got an instinct for what's expensive and you have it's not hard to get but like yeah most of my stuff has been min-maxing as hard as I can Dollhouse was meant to be like let's let's figure out how to make it look as good as possible and as spooky as possible, but like by spending as little money as possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was that whole thing. Everything about that was designed to be min-maxed with varying degrees of success, I think, but I think we can still take a lot from that and move forward productively. I'd say like me and Jake helped produce um, my friend's senior thesis and he was able to put like a lot of money into it. Like it ended up being like almost 30K. And it's like when you start getting into those decently sized budgets and you're paying everyone and you have to follow labor laws and all this thing, it's like, whoa, okay, this is a whole new animal. Yeah, I think a, a big thing as a filmmaker is you don't just just take your shame and put it over there. There's so many totally broke people ideas that are genius that you can do. I follow like some, some film groups and stuff like on, on social media and there's some stuff that I'll see people do and it's like, professional looking lighting setups just with the most ghetto shit you can think <laughs> yeah. of yeah no, i've seen that yeah 
Like, it looks like how drug addicts learn how to make a crack pipe when they don't have a crack pipe. It looks like that, but filmmaking. You can tell they got all their lights from, like, Home Depot and shit. Yeah. And, and you know what, dude? Lean as hard into that as you can if you need to save money. Because if it yeah. looks good, who gives a fuck? Mm -hmm. I guess I'm going to jump back a little bit here. But, like, we were talking about, like, um, YouTube not being a good route to get into, like, the bigger film business. Do you have, like... A bunch of like A plan, B plan, C plan kind of like mapping out or you're kind of just figuring out as you go along? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I have plans for projects and that's about it. Like I have plans for, okay, let's just make a festival short. Let's just make one that we throw at a festival with our experience and just do that. And I feel like we're going to do that sort of after we maybe do a Kickstarter crowdfunding type project. So we could say, look, we have experience with this kind of thing. We know how to spend money. And then it would be much easier to convince an executive to do a feature or something yeah. like that. And like, I've got it, like, I mean, every filmmaker's got at least one I like feature idea that they want. And yeah. I've got a bunch. I mean, to me, I know for a fact that like people underestimate the power of like a really well-run Kickstarter. Like I know for a fact producers that like saw you stretch a really small budget and make a good quality film and also just like how strong and powerful like a really powerful fan base is like amazing like that will push you so far in a lot of ways with outreach with like respect with all these things one of the things i wanted from youtube was i wanted a fan base this is so this is so egotistical but i wanted a fan base that was there for me because if i one day got say uh if one day the stars aligned and I was allowed to make a movie for Netflix, the people that would view that film, and it said, let's say that was my first film, the people that would view that film would view it exclusively within the context of Netflix. And yeah, every yeah. single person on the planet's not going to know who I am if I do have an established fan base. But I at least want some people that are watching it because I did it, you know? Yeah. I mean, it can I mean, also really help with like kickstarting a buzz and them spreading it and like that can really start a wildfire. I mean, and every everybody who wants to get into some kind of business wants their name to work for them, you know? Yeah. One thing I'm interested in is like, so you kind of already mentioned it, how like Steven, um, who's your director, photographer slash co-director, like how's that work, working with someone who like isn't local? So I met Steven in 2012 or 2013 because uh, we were part of the Halo Machinima scene and we just sort of like knew each other for a while and actually really did not get along. Uh, we frequently argued basically every time we spoke and we were fundamentally incompatible human beings um, but just through circumstance we just continued to know each other and I, th I want to say 2016 or 2017 um, like Stephen had already sort of gotten into legit filmmaking I say legit filmmaking he got into live action filmmaking like ages ago he had built up over a while, over a long period of time, some gear and some contacts and asked me to like help him proofread and help edit and help advise some screenplays that he was doing for some short films he was doing. And it, we tried for a while to do a film together with basically no success. And it wasn't until like we tried to do a movie in November of last year and it was it was a fucking disaster. We got some things done really well, but other things that were done outdoors were a mess. I was pers I personally made a fucking ass of myself as a director. I completely embarrassed myself. And that that's a whole other story. Uh, but like um, we didn't have any success and we had leftover budget from that film, which was a really expensive mistake. 
and we I think we had like 3k left over and I said to him like dude fuck that shit let's not finish it and let's just do something that we can do cheap and so I brought up the idea actually he brought to me the idea of what if we did a live action version of like what I did which at the time was first contact and he's like let's do that let's do something quick and I was like okay and he at that point intended to keep doing the film that we were doing before and I suggested to him like look dude fuck that let's just do let's put the remaining money into this other film idea and see what we can do and at that point he had been uh, working as a cinematographer for a lot of other people in his area, and he built up a ton of experience. Uh, he, he's got a lot of demo reels and stuff, so I was like, okay, I, I know for a fact I can trust this guy. So I was able to leave him alone for most of his directing process um, with only like a couple areas where I would have came in and said, hey, let's try this mm -hmm. instead of this. But like other than that, he, he did an insane job given that he basically just did that in a couple days. Yeah. Like all Dollhouse probably filmed like f three or four days, I think. With the exception of stuff that we went and redid and posed. Yeah. Like anybody who's sort of getting into filmmaking, what people usually do, and you'll see this with a lot of early film students, is they go, I want to do everything um, because I don't want to trust other people to do uh, anything like that I want specifically done. And this is how I started when I was doing Machinima. I couldn't trust anybody to do anything. But now that I'm doing stuff, you know, I think, to a higher standard, um, there's times where I just go, please, just do this for me i don't want to do this there's so many jobs i'm just happy to just give to somebody else especially if they're competent like in the end you can still instruct them and like help them like go like if you if you want a specific thing you can help give them direction and the other thing is like one of the best parts of filmmaking is in the end is collaboration you collaborate with other people and the problem that i had when I, when I did my the first time I ever directed actors was I treated them the same way I treated voice actors. And I've been treating voice actors the same way since I was a kid, which was that like, <laughs> yeah. which was that they're, they're instruments. And I just tell them to say it exactly like this and they say it exactly like that. And to some extent, I'm still like that just because it was a habit. And, but like what really kicked me in the teeth was when I went to direct screen actors, which is a way different job, is that they're not instruments unless you're Kubrick, um, they're, they're collaborators. And I embarrassed myself because I didn't know that. And um, I was telling them, no, don't do that, do this, when I should have been saying, maybe think about it like, you're not providing examples, you're providing context. And that, like, if there's a way to not embarrass yourself as a first-time director, you have to think about providing context for the actor to figure it out for themselves. You're basically mm -hmm. trying to inception the performance into their head. It's hard. It's definitely really hard, especially when you have like an actor. I mean, this is why casting is important. That's why you cast the right people. It's it's almost impossible to fix a wrong casting on set. Yeah. The, the thing is, though, is you have to learn how to deal with a uh, bad casting because when you're a low level filmmaker, you have to deal with just getting whoever you can get. And sometimes yeah. the people you can get are not good. And it's not impossible to get good performances out of bad actors. There's plenty of directors that can do it. Yeah. It's, it's like the the main struggle for me is like how much time do I have because it's like I don't have the budget to set up rehearsal days and all these things because it's like no one's being paid it's all volunteer so at times it's like do I have an hour to really try to hash this out with this actor we'll try to I guess do as much as we can here yeah um, that's sort of why it's fun to work with non-actors because like with uh, Dollhouse it was like yo you want to be on a dope ass video and they're like yeah dude let's go <laughs> and and so like it was the, like they were just doing it because it's fun and it is fun um now, yeah, there were some legit actors there, but I mean, like, 
I hate to be like, oh, well, you're getting exposure, but I mean, dude, we're all broke. And we're all in the same position. So, like, some people kind of get it, and they go, okay, let's just do it. Yeah, and then, like, I don't feel weird if it's, like, no one's making money on set. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm not I'm not even making money off of this shit. Yeah, same. <laughs> and in the end, like, it, even if a film goes wrong, like, with that, it's like, well, you still got pretty good material for your reels. Because we did get some good scenes. It's like, okay, well, you can put it on, like, your demo reels or whatever if you were, like, a if you did lighting or cinematography or anything on that. Yeah. But, uh... <laughs> I don't like to think about it, because I cringe. And that's the that's the bad place. Yeah, you gotta, like, just detach yourself from it, I feel like. Well, I took my licks. I'm ready to move on. Yeah. Learn your lessons. I mean, hey, better learn now than, like, when you actually make, like, your first big opportunity and you fuck that up. Yeah. There was an alumni I was talking to, and he basically was like that where he, i think he was like 25 and he basically got the opportunity to like be a showrunner jesus and he's like yes i'm gonna do it i'm gonna take it and of course he immediately destroyed that film out of that show it was awful the budget was handled mishandled everything went to shit and he's like if he yeah. listens to this he's gonna know who he is you're calling him out right now he definitely is not listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> he's way too big he's like running multiple netflix shows and shit but um yeah um, but he actually well if he's killing it now then there's no guy. point he's a producer on Family Guy that's the most I'm gonna say but um but he was saying like even then like he at that point thought his career was over and um he's like nah it's not true like you can always yeah. rebound from even huge fuck ups like that so that was kind of nice to hear but I was listening to the David Lynch masterclass which is amazing you should watch it mm. um and he talked about how he views failure because he talked about how he did Dune and it, to him that was his big failure and that was his low point. Mm, yeah, I forgot about that. And um, how he, sco- he goes like, well, in the end, as a creator, it's unlikely you will never fail. So even even great artists have had extreme low points. Um, and there's been like tons of career revivals and he viewed it as like, well, in the end, it's liberating because nobody's expecting anything of you and you've nothing, you've nowhere to go but up. You know where to go but up. So you can go, you can take a step back, you can work on something with a smaller budget, and you can kill it with that. You know, when you have a, like, if you look at a lot of filmmakers that make an amazing film, um, you get the sophomore slump, which follows, which is a legit thing that you need to actually pay attention to. If you look at a lot of people whose debut film was, like, a massive success, chances are their follow-up didn't get as much praise. I'm looking at you, Jordan Peele. Yeah, Jordan Peele's a pretty good example of that. Um... Ari Aster, I liked Midsummer, yeah. but like, doesn't even come close to Hereditary. But like, to, to Ari Aster's credit, it clearly wasn't trying to. Uh, if you look at Drive, which was I think the first like American film that Nicholas Winding Refn did, and then he did Only God Forgives, and people were like, "Bruh, uh, yeah." <laughs> even me, pull George Lucas, or you have to wrangle his arm whenever he has a dumb fucking idea. I always forget that George Lucas wanted to be an avant-garde art filmmaker. With, yeah. like, Francis Ford Coppola. Mm-hmm. And then you just made Star Wars. Which, I didn't learn until recently that Star Wars was an allegory for the Vietnam War. Yeah, no, I've heard about that, yeah. Where, like, he wanted to make Apocalypse Now. That was George Lucas's movie. And then Coppola got it. He's like, I'm, I'm Really? I don't know that. Yep. That was originally going to be George Lucas's part. They wanted to make it so fucking artsy. They wanted yeah. to make a Vietnam War movie where they took... I don't remember, like, it was a camera crew, it was journalists, or it was, like, university students or somebody. They wanted to take people that were basically a part of the anti-war movement 
and go to Vietnam during the war and just film shit. And it's like, dude, no studio's gonna let you do that shit. Oh like, <laughs> that's a suicide trip. What the fuck? It's not a suicide trip. It's just so dangerous. Like, like no, that's that's really rough. That's like, like they, no, I'm saying like they want to like. I don't remember it exactly, side, like, but like they no, they definitely wanted to go to the war and film the war itself. Oh my god! Before they made Apocalypse Now, but like Apocalypse Now is a whole story unto its like the production is a whole story unto itself. Mm, yeah. But I'm, I understand that this has nothing to do with a, a SCP. Yeah. I, I, Should look, we redirect this, this train that's clearly derailed to the point of? I don't know. Like, like the SCP is like cool. We have an SCP creator. Doesn't actually have to talk about. SCP. I feel like you were about to say, you know, you know, you know, my fuck SCP. You know, fuck this whole thing. Yeah, fuck SCP. You were about to yeah. just break onto a rant. <laughs> Goodbye, my. Channel. These fucking skips. I had a fan tell me he's, he's writing a skip with me in it. I'm like, this is. I've got that too. Where like people go, hey, can I name a character after you? And it's like, dude, I'm not dead yet. You know, maybe, maybe <laughs> I could do something yeah. horrible. You know. Like, why would you ever name something after somebody who's still alive? Why would you ever do that? I could say something that you find so morally reprehensible you'll want me to die. Like, you, you don't know what I'll do tomorrow. Uh, at least me and Jake haven't really gotten the uh, fan smut fan fiction yet, so. I mean, that's inevitable. Oh, what's out there? That's, that's if you get really popular. But, like, the stuff that I'm... Yeah. The stuff that I like is when people take stuff that I, I wanted to add to the universe. And the one of, one of my experiments that I wanted to pop off was the idea of Omega Orange. Because I would I would find it so funny if something that broke the naming convention became popular enough that they were forced to put it into the list. I that, feel like that happens all the time, though. Yeah, but no, nothing broke the naming convention yet. But, like, part of the why I... Like, a lot of people were like, you know, it doesn't fit the naming convention, Evan. It's like, yeah, I, I, I'm aware. I'm aware that it doesn't fit the naming convention and, like, how, the, how that system works. And it's like, yeah, it's on purpose. Because... I found it weird that there was ever a naming convention in the first place. Like, there shouldn't have been a, a system for the names. Because if you look at, like, um, Special Forces, their names are just, just arbitrary. There's whatever they could come up with. Like, Delta Force isn't called Delta Force. It's called Combat Applications Group. You know why they picked that name? Because it's meaningless. Um, if you look at uh, Mac V. Sog, uh, what the hell was Sog? Um, Basically, it was um, studies in operations. I'm going to look that up because people are going to call me out on it. But it's it's an even more banal name. There was a really funny, like, British talk show clip where this guy was listing off all the names of, like, these special forces um, that are under the jurisdiction of the UK. And the guy thought it was, like, a bunch of, like, Oh, he's like, uh, what are these names related to? And he's like, um, homosexuals. <laughs> like, no, they're special forces names. Um, yeah, it's studies and observations group. The other thing about military naming is that, like, there aren't a lot of, there, there are fewer rules than you'd think. Like, um, uh, like when they name an operation, it's like naming a book. It's like they name it based on what they think it means. Like if depending on the tactics or whatever, um, like Neptune Spear, it was just because the Navy SEALs were involved. Um, I don't remember mm -hmm. what the naming for Anaconda was or Gothic Serpent or anything like that. But like a lot of times, it's just whatever they think is fitting. Um, so Neptune Spear was like an actual operation name. Yeah, that was where they killed Bin Laden. 
Oh, wow. Damn, I never knew the like official name. But like, if you look at other stuff in, in the military, which I learned, which I is is should should be a joy to writers, is that like a lot of stuff is just named after what they think is funny, like mission codes. Mission codes are completely arbitrary, um, and it's not for no reason. It's not just because they don't care. It's because if like whenever it comes to oh my god, I'm I'm, I'm talking about like this stuff that people are probably gonna call me out for, but there's a lot of stuff that's like. And we named it this just because, eh, fuck it, fuck it. Like if, um, I can say Red Wings, they named them after beer brands. They named the mission codes after beer brands because, yeah. like, fuck it. Wow. Because, like, yeah. what does Budweiser mean to a terrorist, right? <laughs> like, that doesn't mean anything to them. Yeah. Like, it's just... That's a fair point. Like, it's, it's so arbitrary and meaningless that they can't assign a significance to it that can help them, like, gain an advantage over the, uh, the force in that area. So it's fun for writing because then you can add some sort of poetic system to it. Like uh, with Ghost Town, they, I named all the mission codes after uh, Eastern European vodka brands, um, which was previously that was going to be set in um, South America. And I named it after Latin soap operas. So like, yeah, um, or Latino soap operas, correct word. But like it. Um, so that's usually where it comes from. Or like Dollhouse, um, I don't think I've revealed this, but like it's a small detail that all the mission codes are named after the um, the cycle and uh, I guess the, the the function and com like components of a virus. So like trigger is a sp is a specific component to a virus, and payload mm -hmm. zero one is named after the fact that a payload is a component to a virus. It's stuff like that. Like, that stuff is where you can have fun. Hmm. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I never knew that. Today I learned. You did. If you guys ever want to do MTF stuff, you there's, there's a lot of stuff that you can do that, like, once you do some basic stuff or you get technical versions, you can start having fun with it. Yeah, it's like the next few things we're actually working on is more MTF. Kind of I actually totally bypassed my point. My point that I was going to get to with regards to Mega Orange was the fact that, like, if you look at, like, the numbering for the Navy SEALs, as far as we know, that there aren't actually like ten Navy SEAL teams. It's like they just gave them a number. Wasn't also like, partially for like tactical reasons. Well, it's so, so it's that just... like you can't determine the full size of their force. Yeah. But I, I probably should stop talking about military stuff because I'm not an expert. So I'm gonna stop doing it. Yeah, someone's someone's definitely gonna call us out. Yep. But um So we're just gonna move on. <laughs> um I guess, I mean, I feel like some filmmakers think about this, some don't, but do you have like a, oh, this is like their dream person to work with if I ever had the chance? I mean, in what sense? Like either an actor or like a producer or a DP or, you know. I mean, I'd love to work with Roger Deakins, but like everybody would love to work with Roger Deakins. Yeah. I'd love to work with like, there's a ton of cinematographers I'd like to roll with, but like, um, I mean, everything that I do is in service to the ideas. So if I get an idea, everything about it isn't going to be about who I'd personally like to work with. Ideally, it's what works for that specific idea. So, mm. um, and that goes for, I guess, style as well. I don't know if I'll ever develop a style and I don't really care because to me, it's, it's all about being in service to the idea. The style fits the idea the actors and performances fit that and you're working to serve that rather than letting all of that serve your 
oeuvre or whatever. Yeah, I feel like people that like force a style tends to be kind of cringe. It can be and it can't be, but like I think if you're a developing filmmaker, how about you just start making movies and just see yeah, where you end up? Don't worry about the whole style shit. Um, eventually, like you're definitely gonna have tastes, and that's gonna reflect in your work. But like, yeah, just focus on whatever's best for the idea and see where you end up. I don't know. That's my position, but I'm also not experienced, so. Yeah, I mean, I feel like one thing that I've noticed is like what helps a lot, at least for my creative process and people are actually successful <laughs> is consuming actually like somewhat unique stuff like really trying to explore and push yourself with like certain subjects or having that like growth mentality what i think would be productive is if you just do stuff that's unique to you so if you're making a movie and it's it's something and if you're say not already an established filmmaker in hollywood or even if it, you have to do something different because if if you're not learning consciously, you're you're not doing practice makes perfect. You're just practicing and not getting anywhere. But so it's like with everything that I do, I want to try something new. Um, if I do a Kickstarter project, I know like one of the things I really wanted to do in it was I wanted to do something that was genuinely character focused because it's been so long since I've done a film that was actually like a character driven story. So if I do something like that, I actually want to make some serious drama in it and actually add emotional depth to it and make it a real emotional story instead of just doing what I've been doing, which is fairly impersonal military films. Yeah, I feel like character stuff is really hard. Well, you need to start with a goal and a metaphor if we're going off Paul Schrader's advice, which is once you have the metaphor then everything else falls from that. I have a very top-down approach to filmmaking, which is that like the like like I said, everything works in service to the idea. So, if you have an idea that like let's say, um, uh, like if I had an idea, like a specific metaphor, then the characters have to be built around that metaphor, and their journey have to, has to also be built around that metaphor. Um, now it's not like you can't reverse engineer something like you can come up you can have a goal of like oh I want to make a like a Vietnam War movie and then you can think okay well what would be a cool message in a Vietnam War movie but you need to stop what you're doing and go work on that metaphor and work on that message that's unique and is going to make your film stand out and then you can get back to work on developing the stuff that you want in it in detail because like I actually didn't really start thinking about this until um, last November or last summer probably where it was like the horror that i like is always or the horror that i want to make is always sort of like it's got layers to it in that you have the sort of like superficial level which is is this an immediately scary image or or scene or whatever and then you have the layer above that or below that or however you want to structure this which is is the general situation scary that this person's in like is that also scary? And then you have the version, the layer above that, which is, is this like existentially scary? Is this mm. thematically scary? If you can nail all three of those, even if somebody doesn't get scared, you've generally got something going on. And that's how I felt about Hereditary. Yeah. Like I didn't actually get scared by it, but it felt really like cohesively done. Yeah, I didn't get scared either, but I still thought it was a really good movie. Um, yeah, I loved it. Yeah. It's... I've heard it described as a family drama. Oh, look who can talk suddenly. Yeah, all right. What the fuck? Where'd you come from? Oh, it's there. 
my voice. Uh, there's there's versions of like, oh, I've actually it's it's not actually a, a, a this, it's a this, and it's uh, I, the worst version I ever heard of that was the author's interpretation of House of Leaves. Oh my God, there's an anecdote that I've heard before, and I was like. It's, he, he said, one time I met a fan who said, um, you know, I, I realized it's not actually a horror story. It's a love story. And I just immediately heard that one. You made that up. That didn't happen. You've you've invented this. God. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. House of Leaves is straight fire, but that's such. There's no way that happened. And also, no. Just no. There's always that person that, like digs too deep into something and tries to make it something it's not. Well, that's sort of like what's funny about like telling stories and doing artwork in general is people will often just add shit that was never there. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Well, something that like you really need to earn, learn early on whenever you're going to do anything creative is that once you make something, it's not yours anymore. It's everybody else's. And how they interpret it is how they're going to interpret it. And you, you can... The most you can do as an artist is explain your intent, but like, if you didn't deliver that word for word or like express that, express your intent well enough, it's probably going to turn into something else that you're not going to have any control over. Yeah. I'm just thinking. Did you run out of questions? Not, yeah, I'd, we covered like a lot of the cores. Like there's stuff that like is technically different questions, but it really is the same message. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll talk about this much. Um, one one of the things that I liked about um, the actual like actually doing stuff in specifically SCP and not just doing my original things, um, not actually the SCPs themselves. Um, that's evident by the fact that I haven't used an SCP off the website, but it's not because I hate them. It's because uh, I like to do my own original thing. But this is getting us at the point. I liked talking about the ideas, and I know I mentioned this before, but like the different groups and like how they ideologically contrast with each other and how their different worldviews may collide was something that I liked. Now I haven't expressed that to the fullest that I've wanted to, but I've got ideas of like how I'm going to actually go further with that. Cause that that's the part that I like. I did that in ghost town, but I'm not sure how many people like actually picked up on it. To me, that's the stuff that like really creates interesting conflict between everybody in, in that universe. Um, and the SCPs to me have always just kind of facilitated it. Now, you may get something else out of the SCP universe. I'm not saying, you know, enjoy it my way. I'm just saying this is what I liked. Um, and so a lot of the stuff that I do is me leaning into that. Or a lot of the stuff that I liked and that I would like to do later is me leaning into that. I haven't actually leaned into it too hard. Um, besides Ghost Town, I think. I've actually kind of gone the past few months along the same route. Like, I've been having a lot of fun with, like, Power Watch. Um... For people who don't know, that's basically like this conspiracy group that like is trying to like it's like kind of like you know like alien freaks where they're just like aliens are real and like here's all the evidence, but they're that for like the SCB Foundation, and like half of their shit is like not even close to real, but then like there's like nuggets of like truth. So it's like these like cringy conspiracy theory community. Um, I feel like that's a lot of fun to like kind of mess around with. I mean, Sarkic stuff, I like, I'm a big Cthulhu, like Lovecraft fan. So that's always fun. Just like cultish. If anybody's just to say straight up, like what are your biggest inspirations for anything? I can cite two people immediately. HP Lovecraft and Junji Ito are two yeah. people who very strongly influenced all of the stuff that like I want to do and that I like. 
I'm surprised you haven't done more like body horror stuff. Body horrors, <laughs> dude, I want to. It's just that like um, body horror is expensive. So yeah. it's hard to do with the tools that I have. I'll probably do more of it because I have some pretty spooky stuff in the in the back catalog in the idea mm -hmm. bin. It's just I can't do any of it outside of animation. So if I start doing animation, you'll see a lot more of it for sure. But it's not even the body horror stuff specifically. I like the way that Junji Ito just frames horror in general and how he thinks about it and how he gets to the ideas that he has. Because he's completely separated from a lot of interpretations of horror. He just takes, he completely steps back from it and just goes, okay, what's like an idea and how can I tell it in a terrifying way? A good example of this would be one of, I think, the most accessible and sort of like, here's what Junji Ito is type stories. And that's from his large manga collection, uh, Long Hair in the Attic. Mm. Um, if you just want to know what he's about, that's a really, really good story to start with. Because I think it's got all the key ingredients in like how he approaches something. There's a lot of traditions when it comes to horror writing, um, depending on your culture. I don't remember where I heard this, but... Yeah, fuck. I wish I remembered where I heard this, but I, I heard somewhere that there is a different type of horror protagonist depending on the country of origin that the story came from. Hmm. Um, well, the American horror protagonist, generally speaking, these are huge generalizations, obviously, um, is a character that is often heroic and has the capacity to overcome the evil presented to them. This comes obviously from... Usually the horror is integrated with Christian uh, theology and stuff like that and uh, stuff where good can conquer evil. And <clears throat> if you look at the European horror protagonists, that's usually not the case. It's usually the horror exists within the self. This is where you get like, you know, Mary Shelley and Dr. Frankenstein and stuff like that. Um, and if you look at the Japanese horror protagonists, it's usually they're completely at the mercy of the world around them. Mm, yeah. They have very little capacity to fight back against what what's around them. Which, when you look at Junji Ito's work, it makes, you, you can see that in full effect. The, the characters are very often completely at the mercy of, of the world around them and the ridiculousness. They, they very rarely have agency, which is why I think Junji Ito often doesn't bother writing interesting characters. He usually just writes characters that just get you from A to B. Yeah. Unless they're a villain. He's very good at writing villains. Um, it's uh, but like what I thought about recently was that what if you could like not even talking about them as a protagonist what if you just took these themes and what if you could do all of them and cosmic horror is very good at that um, if you look at stuff like the shadow over Innsmouth do you know what that is I haven't read that one actually Jake I know of it okay did, did you know what it's about no okay well I'll just say it's um, I think it does a good job at combining all of these things because it does the person at the mercy of the world around them. It does the horror existing within the self, but it's also, I think, in some ways, in a very non-traditional way, it's about it's still about the character conquering the things around them. But it's it's about them conquering that horror within the self and accepting it in a way the character. I don't know if they willingly accept it at the end of the story, but they do accept it. And they, they find a way to live with this reality. Um, now, I don't know, like, that's not a perfect example, but my point is, is that you can combine them all. And I think when you combine them all in a cosmic horror sense, you get something that's really interesting. 
And that's the stuff that I really want to try. Uh, like with, not with what I'm doing currently, but I'd like to try that with like, you know, stuff down the line. Yeah, I really, really, I don't know what attracts me to it, but I really love the horror where it's like, you are just this little speck and you have, you have, you know, the idea of like you being able to like control and win, take over and conquer these horrors or situations is like laughable. Well, I, I'm a generally, I like my stuff to have a fairly positive message. Um, it, you may not see that, but like I, yeah, what I totally. get out of yeah. it, yeah, <laughs> it, it's hard to see, but I like stuff that's like, you know, people may not have the capacity to fight back, but you have the capacity to learn to live with it or you can, and this may not even be slightly presented in anything that I've done, but like, cause most of my stuff isn't really that deep, but like, I like the idea of people can not necessarily triumph, but they can they can either learn to accept it with it or, or learn to live in spite of something. Um, because that's mostly what most people have to do. Yeah. I feel like I'm talking way above what like my actual body of work is, but it's that's definitely the stuff that I really enjoy. Where I mean that's definitely my world too. Because if I did a story about a person being at the mercy of the universe at the end, um th there's not a lot that I can get out of that because it's strictly a character without agency the end. And I don't think most Japanese horror is that. I'm not saying that's the case. I'm not even saying Lovecraft's the, that, that in the case of that. Um, because Lovecraft was a, was a good author. Um, but it's... Um, even if a character is unable to conquer something, I, I like to be able to say, you know, there is some shred of hope. Right? Like, there is some way for you to get past this. Well, I like when they're like able to really resolve a situation in like a really interesting and like adaptive manner. Yeah, because the problem that you encounter if you want to make horror movies is if you have the character in a position of success or survival by the end, you have to find a way to make it not take away from the horror. Yeah. Because if you have a character defeat the horror at the end, the horror is not all that scary by the end of the movie. And it's not going to stick with you. Mm -hmm. But if you have the horror like kill somebody at the end and there was nothing they could do about it. I don't find that terribly scary either because the stuff that now this is completely subjective because horror is subjective. I like the idea of maybe I could beat it. Maybe I could if I tried really hard, but I don't know for a fact that I'd be able to beat it. It's sort of like the chaos gods from Warhammer 40k. I like of all the chaos gods. I think Selenash is the coolest one. Um, and I like the idea of where Slanesh lives because it's specifically, it's specifically based on your own capacity to indulge. It's if you wanted to go meet Slanesh and chill out with Slanesh, you have to go through all these different temptations. There's nothing violent that's going to kill you. It's specifically temptation. And so to me, that's scary because it's like, I don't know. Could I be tempted in that in that type of environment? Could I give in? I and you don't know, and you can ponder it and 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 actually construct it. But like, if a, if a horror is strictly unstoppable, it's like, what am I gonna do? I, I I like the idea of like people actually thinking, could I actually get out of that? Because then they're thinking about it. Because it's like, have you ever played Spec Ops? Spec Ops: The Line. You ever played that game? No. I I, I played it. Yeah. Great game. Okay. You remember the part where. Uh, spoiler, you have to do a war crime and you don't have a choice in it. Yeah. So that part never bothered me because I didn't have a choice. 
That makes sense. If I, like, I remember playing that and going, well, I, I, I couldn't have proceeded in the game if I hadn't done this, so I'm not going to feel bad about it. And the game wants me to feel bad about it. And I know that there was a lot of deliberation over that specifically, but I still came out going, I didn't feel bad because the game made me do it. Like, in order to, to succeed in the game, you have to do it. I think that's definitely a flaw of the game um, in one way, but I, I do think it did have... It had a very specific message it wanted to get across. Yeah. It did so even if you didn't want to listen to the message, which is kind of almost, you know, counterintuitive to what it is, where it's like, you're just a mindless gamer. You're just shooting anything that moves. Um, and then they were like, here, let, let's help you pull the trigger. It's like, all right. If if I'm, like, I come from a bit of the stoic philosophy, so which is my the whole thing is I'm not going to worry about things that are, out of, that are out of my control. And so if I do a type of horror movie where it's out of your control, you're fucked. That doesn't particularly scare me because you didn't have a lot of control in whether or not something could happen. I want to give you just enough, but I want to make it about, you know, people. I feel once again that I haven't displayed any of this in any of my work, <laughs> but like, those are that's my taste. I'm just expressing my taste at this point. Like, I like Junji Ito because he specifically talks about the human condition in his horror, and it's very potently put forward. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm just making conversation, and we. Barely scratch the surface of SCP in this. Yeah, I could care less. Oh, Jake, you got any comments? Huh? Want to remind everybody that you're still here? Hey, what's up, gamers? You you know, we waited for you in order to start this podcast. You are aware that that is a fact, right? All right, well, I haven't felt like it was an opportune time for me to start talking. Well, now you're prompted to do so. Now it is. I'm prompted to, I mean, you were just speaking. I was so entranced in what you had to say for the past uh, hour and 20 minutes. I just, you know, <laughs> sorry to hear that. I wasn't <laughs> that intelligent. No, it was, it was, a. Uh, you, you did a lot of deep dives on a variety of things. Um, our last podcast got some fun comments on the lack of, uh, was it the last one? I think it was the one prior, actually. Lack of SCP. I mean, it's not like we put SCP in the name of the podcast, so I don't know why people are complaining. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's clearly called the Ska Podcast. The Ska Podcast, yeah. Welcome to the, the podcast, podcast. is, is yeah. its own word. SC is its own thing. Whatever that stands for, yeah. you can come up with. Um, super, super Post cool. a comment uh, below what you think SC should stand for. Oh, God. No, why? Stop cringe. <laughs> Stop cringe podcast. Yeah, I mean, like, my other question was like, oh, what got you into filmmaking? I feel like people are always interested in that kind of stuff. Like, why? Jesus. I, I'd have to go back to when I was, like, 12. I think I just, like, one day wanted to remake somebody's internet video with, like, a shitty camera that you normally take pictures instead of videos on. And then from that point, I was like, yo, we can make stupid videos on these shitty cameras. We can be filmmakers. And from that day on, I wanted to be a filmmaker. And it was sort of about just facilitating it. So, like, mostly we just made terrible parody films in our backyard and, like, in our neighborhood at that time with our friends. Um, and at some point I left the town and sort of was just like, I stopped doing it, but I was like, oh, there's this thing called machinima where you can record a video game and you can put bad voice acting over it and make your own dumb story. And I did that for <laughs> ever at this point. And man, the, it, I, I would have so many things to go tell 16-year-old Evan before he made the tragic mistake to start his Halo Machinima career. Because not a single one of my Halo Machinimas is good. They're all bad. 
and even a lot of my GTA stuff. And I mean, it just stuck and I'm, I mean, I'm glad I did it because I mean, I met all my contacts through that. An interesting thing that like I did learn listening to, oddly enough, the Film Riot podcast was the different stories about filmmakers and how they got to where they were. And what you'll learn is that a lot of them don't typically have a similar story. They all got to where they were differently and in, in very in a very unique way. Um, be it an editor, a stuntman, or whatever. Like it's usually a, an extremely specific situation that got them into into the industry. Yeah. Um, and mine is like if I'm not even in the industry, but I'm certainly in filmmaking in a different way. Um, a lot of my friends who were making machinima just kind of stopped doing it. And but I can completely understand why I just sort of ended up sticking with it. Although when like as much as we didn't talk about SCP, it's and and it's not like I don't care because I it would be disrespectful of me not to care given how much it has done for me. Because in 2018-ish, that was like a really, that was legit one of my worst years where I I was actively bleeding subs every day and I just couldn't put together something that got me anything. Like in 2017, I had put together a Halloween video called Catabasis, which to this day still has like no views. And it was a really, really important project to me when I was working on it. I thought it was really good and focused on a lot of stuff that I liked, but and I thought it turned out okay, but like nobody watched it. And it's like, I had no idea what I was gonna do. And I was pretty much ready to stop making videos. And just that Halloween, when I usually make a Halloween video, I was like, okay, I'm gonna make an SCP video and maybe it'll get like a couple of views and people might like it. And now it's got 2 million views. So here we are. Yeah. Um, I had an alternative strategy was to just delete my channel, start fresh and do animation, but that's obviously the changed. Yeah. Um, possibly for the worse, possibly for the better. We have yet to find out. Um, I, know, I feel like starting a fan base from scratch like takes years. I don't know. Cause it's like, I don't even know who watches my videos. Like, I don't know who these people are. I don't know why they like my content. I don't have a very like intimate relationship with any of the people commenting on my stuff because I don't see a lot of reoccurring commenters besides people that I know personally and um, I don't know what people expect of me I don't know um, what people want out of this channel I don't even know what my channel's brand identity is um, besides making gaming related and like internet videos sorry like <laughs> internet related videos and movies and stuff this and, like, is most very boiled down but I feel like from an external point of view, it's just, oh, you're the SCP military guy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's not a bad position. As long as I have a thing yeah. that people want, then as long as it's getting traction, I don't really care. Yeah. I mean, it's been it's been fun, like, doing it and meeting different people who wanted that out of SCP but just didn't have that cater to them, which was sort of my position when I made it. I was like, I don't think there's a lot of this, and I don't think there's a lot of people bringing the same kind of, like, style or... Um, emphasis on certain things that I'd like to see because I remember reading certain logs for certain SCPs and going military guys wouldn't talk like this why is this dialogue like this it's kind of weird and going well what if I did something that was more military focused and had a little more knowledge behind it um, 
or at least done by somebody who kind of wanted to get right, even if even if he couldn't get it perfectly right, because of course I can't. Yeah. Like one thing that really surprised me, and this is something I learned after we started the channel, was like, wow, there's actually a real community behind the scenes with the SCV community. Like the creators all interact on some level. We all talk to each other to some capacity. We all are aware of each other. And yeah, that's that the other thing. Like it's like crazy. if we're if we're gonna link this back to the previous conversation of like who who do I identify with in terms of my relationship to my work and other people, it's it's difficult because it's like I don't really feel like I'm a part of any group. Hmm. I feel like I'm just me. I don't know because it's it's like I, I don't talk to a lot of people in the SCP community. I don't. Nobody's really reached out for collaboration, nor have I to them. Uh, besides like adding Volgun to like one scene, but Volgun and I don't talk. Yeah. Um, it's, um, I don't know. Like if there's people in the community that want to collab, I'm down. It's just like uh, most of the time it's it's kind of difficult because I don't know how I can collab with most people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Most of the people I collaborate with are my friends. Um, it's, I don't know. If, if people want to integrate me into their community, that's fine. It's just, I don't know. I've never actively sought it out. Uh, yeah, my my philosophy is just like actively pursue it. If people don't follow through, move on. Because I, I just like in my life experience, it's always been like I usually have to make the first step, or like I'm not going to be actively a part of something. I don't, I, I don't know. Like most of the relationships that I built were just based off people coming to me. Very few people that I met were people that I specifically reached out to. Like. Hmm. Um, a long, long, long time ago, one of the popular creators at the time in ha the Halo Machinima community was a guy named Mike WB. He was the first guy that I ever met in like the community, and then after that, I met uh, a bunch of other people, including Steven. Um, and now it's kind of the same. Um, I, I, there's people that I tried to reach out to that didn't reply and shit, but like that was just for like some voice acting, and I thought it would be funny to like add their voice to stuff. And there's people that I'd, I don't know, if they wanted to collab, I'd be down, but I don't know. It's sort of difficult balancing that with the insane amount of work that I have. Yeah, no, that's big. Because it's like right now I'm doing, I'm trying, like we just decided that we're not doing the Kickstarter idea now. And we're going to push it back behind another short, sort of similar in scale to Dollhouse. Mm -hmm. um, which, thank Christ, I already have an idea for. Which, if you ever start... Part of the terror of doing this is coming up with ideas. Like, I've never been more worried about, like, anything than, like, coming up with ideas and going, oh, my God, I need to come up with an idea. And whenever you're not coming up with an idea, it's like, oh, my God, I'm not working. I'm not making a video or whatever. And sometimes ideas can take months to actually form. Because yeah. sometimes I can know what I want, but, like, I don't know how to actually turn it into a story. You've just described my life for, like, the past year. Yeah, well, you're not the only one. Especially if you're just <clears throat> like a lot of people are like, bro, it's easy. There's a vault of SCPs and you just pick any one and you just make it into a story. And every fucking day I get a comment. It's like, yo, you should do this SCP. This SCP would be so cool if you do that one. And every time I go, no. <laughs> and I, I'm not saying I won't ever do it. Because if I come up with an idea for like a way to expand upon a pre-existing SCP, I'll do it. But 
Part of the reason somebody say looks at a Volgun video and clicks on it is because they see an SCP that looks cool and they want to learn about it. Anybody refuting this? No. No. Yeah. Okay. And part of the appeal exists within the framework of SCP itself. So as long as I keep the framework, in this case the factions, the ideologies, and the style, but I f use that as a means of facilitating horror ideas, I still think I'm working within SCP and adding to it. If I was to work off a pre-existing idea, everybody knows what it is. And no disrespect to Clay, but he's starting from a disadvantage if he wants to make a movie about 096, because everybody already knows about 096. Mm. Um, which is why, unless he's doing the information about 096 verbatim, I don't think he is in an easy and optimized position to produce something scary, if that is indeed his goal, if he's doing it, like, with information that we already have. If he intends to add something onto it that's his own, that's unique, maybe. But I don't know what you could. It's tough. It's tricky. It really Definitely depends on, I guess, it depends on the objectives um, going forward with that sort of thing. Because if you're looking to make something, you know, impactful, yeah. um, there's a matter of, you know, a lot of people are just going to be happy because they see 096 oh, yeah, for sure. doing things. That's going to be a huge amount. Um, but, you know, there's also, because we know it, are you going to, is there going to be innovation? Are we going to be kind of looking at an angle that we haven't seen before that isn't already explored? Um, yeah. Ideally, that's kind of how it's done. Either that or, again, an accurate portrayal of it is kind of the, the other route. Yeah, it's... Um but like what I like about the idea of SCP for me personally, this is an opinion, uh, is I like the idea of existing in a work environment where you don't know what you're going to encounter. So a lot of my stories are about people walking into something that's a mystery or it's something that they think they know, but they learn more about, which in my opinion is what really is well-paced horror is about, is it's about learning. and how you dole out the information appropriately. If I start out a film and you already know absolutely everything about Jason Voorhees, you're probably not terribly scared by him, um, which is why I don't think you can make a, a scary Friday the 13th movie ever again. What if we put him in space? Genius. There we go. I'm already shaking. Not because it's scary, but because that's such a bad movie. It's horrible. Man. It's because it's, it's so low good. temperature in space. That's why you're shaking. I don't know why, but I've seen Jason X more than once. Oh, no. I don't know why. Power this to is, you. I, Power to I don't you. like the film. Man, once is enough for I me. I actually think it's the only Friday the 13th film I've seen also. Same. Yeah, I haven't seen any of them other than that. You know what's interesting about that, though, is like I know basically everything about Friday the 13th, but I've never seen a single film. Which is a, a paradox yeah. about horror as well, that you're really going to have to learn to live with, which is that because horror is scary because you don't understand it, um, people are going to want to learn about it because people are like that and they ask questions and they want answers. And if they get them, they're no longer scared by the thing that you have in your stuff. So if you look at a lot of pop culture icons in horror, the Xenomorph, Jason Voorhees, Freddy, like pick, pick your popular culture monster they're, they're not scary um, because they've been parodied they've been explored every piece of information has been 
divulged out of them in either books or sequels or comics or whatever like it, or memes fucking whatever it's it's anything anything you could possibly think of has been expanded upon on these things to the point that there's nothing left for you to learn and it's it's difficult for something to stay scary i guess if you want to be a filmmaker um there are certainly things that can stay scary if you're sort of lucky like um if there's a sequel to it follows that would be a problem but like i don't think there's gonna be um it follows origins where we see the beginning of the it follows monster uh it's, it's, yeah mm. like, <laughs> like annabelle but like the it follows monster I, to I me will, is, is still scary even though it's a pretty well-known monster i will say that facehugger still fucked me up facehugger still still pretty that's scary. just because it's it's pulling from you know pretty basic elements Primal. of it's, yeah, it's and, like, it's not fear. as alien as the alien because you can compare it to like crabs and stuff like that that exist that are already pretty freaky. And also the face like is less parodied. The the alien like is all about um just I think it's it's about like male well kind of fear. The whole thing is an in a way the whole thing is an allegory for rape. Uh like the whole thing yeah. from the start was like was that like it the aliens vaguely phallic in nature you get basically impregnated by the face huggers it's all about that mm-hmm. it's that it can happen to yeah. anyone was supposed to be what made it scary i think it's the idea that it's like i don't know uh, it, it's just yeah no it's loss of power it's you're completely helpless as this thing is well, just uh i always thought that ravaging like, the face hugger and the impregnation was scarier than the alien itself same i'm totally on that boat i mean the the most i the think most like the waiting upsetting sucks. part of the entire film in this, in the first aliens is when um, we get that wonderful dinner scene. No alien scene like that involving a fucking chest bursting alien has had that level of an effect as that first scene. That uh, that's been ruined for me. Oh, not it's ruined. It's been parodied. But it for lost sure. its impact after yeah, Spaceballs. It's been parodied, but yeah. I haven't seen Spaceballs, so I haven't been ruined. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> you're committing a crime. I just know that that is a thing that happens in Spaceballs. It's a great thing that happens. I feel like the horror I really like is the stuff that like goes into like identity and like what is identity? What makes you you? Especially when you're changing in that process of change. Like the whole ship of Theseus where it's like but like on I guess like on a mental scale. I'm guessing one of your favorite horror films is The Fly. Yeah, I actually fucking love that movie, yeah. And I guess that is a good example. You know, it's funny. I've heard the Theseus paradox or not, yeah, the Theseus Paradox used in explaining the fly, uh, where it was part of that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. If anybody doesn't know, the Theseus Paradox is basically, I don't know, you brought it up, do you want to explain it? Yeah, sure. It's basically this ancient Greek uh, ship that is damaged in war, so they start replacing parts over time to the point where, like, I don't know, like a decade later, all the parts, none of the original parts of the boat are actually a part of the boat. So is it still the same boat? Mm-hmm. And you can apply that to human beings because yeah. your cells are replaced constantly to the point that you currently possess none of your original cells in your body. Um, we are reconstituted every nine years. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jake. I've died at least twice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Thank you for your contribution, Jake. Or, or did I? Or did I? <laughs> yeah. Jake, Theseus oh, Paradox. Oh. Maybe I'm still here. I, 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 I guess my hot take on the Theseus Paradox, I would say yes, it's the same ship. Because something about the ship has to remain the same in order for it to still be the same ship, right? Something about it. It's just it. that we call it that. I, I would say that, yes, we do assign it. Like just It's that intangible identity yeah. that is what keeps it as it. N not just that. I think a other thing is like, yes, we have the design that generally remains the same. And we also have um, the name that was there for each part that was replaced on it. So the name was there every time. So that's the same. We have the crew, which unless they're completely replaced in this journey, we're still there throughout Theseus's voyage. So I think, yes, it is still the same ship. Um, and for human beings, I think that the influences of your experiences are still with you throughout your, uh, th throughout your, your life, which is why I think people stop being the same person when they say get brain damage or whatever, right? Like you, mm. you don't have the same experiences anymore because they're no, no longer affecting you. you and, and, and you no longer have the capacity to apply them. So I think I think that's what sticks. There you go. That's my that's, like, that's my philosophical tangent for this SCP podcast. I mean, that's seriously one of my greatest fears. This oh yeah, dude. Alzheimer's like, terrifies me. Uh, thank God I don't oh, have boy. it in my family. I don't have it either. I'll say like another, I guess another parallel, or not parallel, but a, a sort of like a more tangible example of the Theseus thing. Um, it, it's it's memories, just in general, where it's like. Every time you remember something, you're only remembering the last time it was remembered. You're remembering the memory, yeah. I don't know what that has to do with yeah. the Theseus Paradox, but yeah. Well, in the sense that it's being Rebuilt. kind of morphed and replaced. replaced so yeah. it's at some point, it's like, how is this memory that I have still that memory? No. but like, Is it really that moment? Did this happen? But like, once again, I'm going to bring it back to the idea of like, in, in the end, the experiences that got you here, your, your lived context and experience is still you, I think. And as long as that affects what you're doing, it's still you. Yeah. <laughs> Good talk. <laughs> yeah. I'm just looking. I'm looking more isolated at the, you know, the memories. Came here for SCP. Stayed for the and then I completely fucking philosophy. You were just saying this is what scares me. No, like when you were talking, it made me think of something else. But well, uh, you were you're talking about the horror of identity and stuff like that. One of the... Yeah. In my opinion, uh, I think the greatest horror film ever created by humans is a movie called The Thing, and mm -hmm. it is a. Ooh, I think, I th in my opinion, it's the best horror movie. Now, yeah, it hasn't aged perfectly. There's things about it, cause, you know, it's fucking old, but like, it's it uh, to me, it ticks all the boxes. And what I like about it. What do you mean? It's only from uh, 2011. <laughs> 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 what I like about it is that the themes in it are universal enough that most people <clears throat> can assign interpretations to it themselves that are unique but also uniquely interesting there's a fuckload of interpretations of uh the thing and i guess subsequently who goes there which is the novel it's based on but like a lot of them are pretty good but like none of them are specifically right or wrong and i think the thing is a brilliant film because it facilitates all of these very well and i think it caters to a lot of different fears at once if there was ever like a movie influence for me when it came to horror movies, it would be the thing. Like, invariably. And I, I try to watch it every year, and every year I notice something different. This year, I did notice something different. All the characters in the film 
have their job fucked with in some way. And like, not just fucked with, fundamentally dismantled. Like, um, the helicopter pilot has the helicopters destroyed. The doctor has the blood bags fucked with. The uh, radio guy has the radio dismantled. All the characters, you can do this with all of them, have that done to their job. And I thought it was interesting and it could not have been an accident. And I didn't notice it until watching it now. Somebody's probably gonna go, I noticed that the first time, idiot. Yeah, I feel like that definitely wasn't by accident, that level, yeah. There's no way it was by accident, especially when it integrates so well with the story. Cause like so much of people's identity is based on their job, which I'm sure has a lot to do with SCP on this SCP related <laughs> podcast. It does, you know, uh, jobs like scientist, yeah, doctor, um, MTF. There was, uh, there's the guy who, uh, D, D class. Yeah. They, there's some of those. Well, I, I guess one thing I'll say is like my current issue, I guess, with like how a lot of SCP stuff is expressed. Hot take. Hot take. Is, yeah. I guess it's hot take. It just feels detached from like an actual like secret operation where there's like a real sense of mystery i feel like a lot of the weight i've got opinions about this it just feels like this bland like soap up not soap opera like um fuck what's like king of queens like a sitcom it feels like a sitcom one of the things that people complained to me about multiple times was that i very rarely used the actual logo mm-hmm. of the scp foundation and i still don't like using it basically ever because i don't even think the scp foundation should have a logo I think it's literally pointless. Yeah. Um, because a logo ascribes an identity that you can have reoccur, which can, which is basically you. It's basically you saying this is we're responsible for this. So when you apply that to clandestine secret people, it makes it very questionable because if I say had an MTF unit and they all had SCP foundation patches on their shoulders if anybody videoed them they'd see the patch if like they had an MTF specific patch they'd see the patch and if they did something else somewhere else they'd see the patch again which would identify them and also and help people who are investigating them or want to find out about them develop a you know specific MO so like it's like even in like if I I had a story written where it's like there's a bunker and one of the guys who's helping me design it because it was intended for animation was like why don't we put more SCP logos everywhere and it's like well because if it gets raided people are gonna oh yeah this is owned by the SCP Foundation they'll just know so like if you're looking at this from the perspective of we don't want to get identified putting the SCP Foundation logo on stuff is a bad idea. I guess my only counter argument to that is a lot of thanks for coming to my TED talk. Yeah, real life, actual secret organizations that ended up getting declassified. They didn't have like necessary symbols everywhere, but they always had some sort of symbol that like represented and unified that organization. Some of them do, but like most of the time, here's me being an armchair general again. Is like most people don't actively brandish their identity in the field if they're clandestine. Uh, a lot of special forces tend to dress up as uh, irregulars and like the, the native population. If you want a specific example of this, you can look at um, the Battle of Tora Bora. There's a picture, I think it's even on Wikipedia, of all the operators who were there 
and they're all completely indistinguishable from the um, native militants that they were fighting alongside and fighting against. I definitely I agree with you in that aspect. Like you wouldn't want like people who are actively out going out into the world, but more of like I noticed with a lot of like declassified stuff, it's like you'd have the gov- that organization symbol on the paperwork or like kind of like smaller yeah. things like that. A time where it's useful, I think, is if you have an emergency group like Nine-Tailed Fox. I don't mind them having a uniform and a symbol because they need to be immediately identified and they're working exclusively internally. Yeah. So for me, that's not a big deal. I think it works fine there. But if you have like people who are going out into the world and stuff, it's like, why would you want to be identified? Yeah, for MTF especially, yeah. Uh. The other thing was people were like... You know, Evan, this MTF only wears this color, but everybody in this unit has a different color jacket. Are you rarded? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's it, it's the same thing. It's like it, if they're like private contractors and they're just like, like why would they? Why would they, why would it matter? Yeah, they also don't want to look like a specific unit I mean, in a regiment that you could identify without having any actual knowledge about. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's it's a it's like the worst case scenario commenter. I'm, I'm aware of that. Yeah. Alright, I'm I'm gonna wrap this baby up. I can keep going, bro. We can always do a round two. You give me a Don't fucking worry. subject. I will I will just go forever. We totally can do a round two. Um who knows, maybe part two. Keep keep your eyes peeled, folks. Or ears, I guess. Um Peel back your ears. But uh is there anything you wanna shout out? Anything you wanna tell the people about? I don't have anything specific to shout out. I will just say, um, be on the lookout for any projects I'm going to be doing from down the line, specifically crowdfunding projects. I mean, when that comes, like, like we're going to need all the help we can get because we want to do some real serious shit. And I don't know how easily we can budget it to the point where it's going to be cheap. And I promise you we're going to do some cool shit. So uh, I guess that's all I got to say. I guess we can wrap this baby yeah. up. Thanks for coming along, guys. Thank you, Evan. This is fun. Thank you for, uh, thank you for Jake for, I don't know, <laughs> providing a... Like you know a passive support to the to this, like it's an RPG. Yeah. You're just my presence ch- has been really impactful. The chat. He's there running the support unit. All right, peace out, guys. Say bye, Jake. Bye, bye, Jake. <laughs>